Welcome to the Skill Stadium, a podcast for the skilled trades, where you can learn about the opportunities and benefits of working in the skilled trades from business owners, hiring managers, and the hardworking, talented professionals. And now, your host, Keith Williams. Welcome to the Skill Stadium Podcast, episode 96. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Keith Williams. Every week, we feature professionals in the skill trades, business owners, educators, influencers, career coaches, giving real-world advice. I have three requests. If you enjoyed the podcast and it brought you value, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and write a review. Write one thing that you learned or enjoyed about the podcast. Your support means the world to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Today's guest grew up in Lexington, North Carolina, and is a workforce development consultant. My guest is most proud of making a difference in closing the skills gap. He's passionate about exposing underserved youth to careers in manufacturing. And as a matter of fact, in October 2002, when he was in Nashville, he was at an event where the facility managers were asked, who would be retiring in the next 10 years? And 90% of them raised their hands, which sparked his life mission. He wants to close the skills gap. And, and what's interesting about my guest is that he wrote songs for the maintenance crisis. And it was inspired when he saw the youth, the kids at the American Idol tryout. He saw them and realized that the best way to connect with them is through music. And that's what really got him on this mission. Please welcome Joel Leonard to the Skill Stadium podcast. Joel, how are you this morning? Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time this morning and the opportunity to share what I'm trying to do. Joel, can you tell us about your song? I, I mean, I have, to, I have to ask you about that. That's the first thing I really wanted to... <laughs> well, it was written because the guy said I couldn't do it. So, uh, you know, when somebody tells you can't do something, what do you do? Go and do you it. You do it. So, so we, it was an idea that we had while we were drinking some barley-infused beverages while we were at the uh, engineering conference, and 90% of our 600 attendees announced that they were going to retire in the next 10 years. And we walk around the corner, there were 5,000 kids standing in line in 30-degree weather singing songs trying to get on American Idol. And so as a result, I went back home, started playing with some words, put it together, got some real musicians to help record it. And now there's 15 genres of that same song. We realize that some people won't listen to something unless it's in a certain genre. So we decided to fan the genres with the same lyrics, have it as long as let the musicians uh experiment with the various styles that they wanted to with the words, but they had to maintain the, the message. And it was incredible. I mean, we've got opera, hip-hop, bluegrass, blues, reggae, funk, every kind of genre you can think of almost, uh, and including two Greek versions. So this has been played at international conferences all over the world, and it was also played at the White House and Congress. And also in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when they had a conference there on engineering, they played my song. So that's amazing. What an impact that is having, because I, I do believe music does connect with people. I think that's universal, as I'm sure you're seeing. 
Well, it was amazing. I mean, I go out and I volunteer and speak to the schools all the time. And I was at a charter school and I was singing my, my next song, which was called Find Me a Maintenance Woman. And three of the young ladies in the classroom sang the song with me because they knew the lyrics because they've been playing it on a country station over and over again. And so um, it's incredible the reach that uh, music has. And, uh, you know, this will be played long after I'm gone. And it's a very important message because it's always going to be a challenge keeping up the assets and resources that we have in constant function and and make sure it's not gets in disrepair. Mm -hmm. And so... So it's it's a critical message that we got to get out. And I just wrote a new song called Take This Job and Love It. Soon boomers won't be here anymore. Mm -hmm. You want to clean up your financial mess, go clean up your act and go pass a drug test. Mm -hmm. Joel, tell me something. You know, growing up, did you have someone that mentored you or had a big influence on you? Think back to when you're in high school or your early 20s. Well, there's numerous folks, including teachers, scoutmasters. And neighbors. Uh, I had a neighbor that uh, introduced me to seven o'clock in the morning and he took me to work. So, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, I went to work. I messed up in school. I found out the inverse proportional relationship between your academic life and your social life. And I uh, had a first year of college. I had too much fun and and my grades suffered. So uh, I went to work in a furniture factory. And one of the plant managers took me under his wing and really got me straightened out uh, to focus on what was important. The bad part was the prettiest girl in the whole plant chewed tobacco. So I had to stay focused on my job. There wasn't any social strike me there. So (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I understand. And it's a different world when you go from high school into the workforce, especially at a young age. Yeah, our our school systems don't really prepare people that well for that transition. And that's part of the driving what I'm doing. I mean, we've got to get more, especially in North Carolina. I mean, we have had an explosion of jobs this year. We've been had just this year, we've had over 25,000 new job announcements that will be coming in the next several years. And, and there's going to be a lot more on top of that. And we're already in a tight labor market. It, it's incredible uh, the amount of jobs that are coming. And it's going to be very difficult to get the pipeline built up of strong enough. And that's why it's a great opportunity for underserved youth that they get the right training. They can walk right into a livable wage job. Definitely. Definitely. So tell me, what prompted you to get on this mission to serve, particularly underserved communities, minorities, and ex-offenders, because they are often overlooked. Well, and that's why it's it's so obvious that we don't have them in the workforce. And and again, as you have tight labor markets, you've got to look at alternative options. And again, the people, uh, the Obama administration said something. I'm not sure who actually said this. I, I think Obama is credited saying this, but it was really incredible statement because they say, you know, the rich don't need to learn how to use tools. They can hire the middle class. Mm-hmm. So if you want to build the middle class, you provide access to tools, equipment, and training. It's true. It's true. You've got to, you've got to build that pipeline, I believe. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also, and that's why the maker movement is so important. 
Yeah. I do think, like you said, it does start with the schools and the schools making preparation for these students. I mean, organizations like yourself and people like yourself are making an impact, but there's only so much ground you can cover by yourself. We need 10 more people like you doing what you're doing. You know, I mean, that's really how you start to see a significant difference. It's just the process and the system. But I do think it also, you have to look at parents too. Absolutely. In fact, it was interesting. I had a great conversation with the, the gentleman an athletic director. And here he is toward the end of his career. And, and he's reflecting back on it. And he said that he's frustrated that he's seen just a star athlete come through the system. And it's because the star athletes, they get encouragement from their parents to pursue their sporting career. They don't really know what to do on their uh, business career, and they, they really don't live up to their true potential because they just aren't focused on that, and they don't really know what direction to go to. The school system's been focusing on their sporting activities, and they've been ignoring the regular class activities so or just doing the minimal. And so they graduate, they go out and have kids, and then their kids come back to school and they become star athletes, and then they continue the poverty cycle. Mm -hmm. So he is super frustrated by that, and as a result, he's working with me, and we're now trying to figure out systems and processes to get the coaches to incorporate training into their practices and before and after so that these kids have a stronger direction and focus forward. And so we're calling it the uh, Athlete to Tech Elite Program. I like that. I also think that athletes would make good employees, good workers in this profession because they're disciplined, they're competitive, they know how to work in a team. So I think that's a good group of people to target. Absolutely. I mean, and again, there's 25,000 jobs announced this year. Well, coincidentally, there are 25,000 JV and varsity football players. Yep. And I only chose the football players because they're the largest collection of, of uh, sports or athletes uh, on a team. So but if we got all the soccer and volleyball and all the, all the other base basketball, all the softball, all of them, focused on their industrial outcomes and get them taking just a range for this guy to have 40 students get their OSHA 10 cards. Every kid in high school needs to get their OSHA 10 card. Mm -hmm. And what that does is that gets them opportunities to walk right into the factory with the prerequisites to work there. And they don't have to and that also gives them an opportunity to move past retail or other normal minimum wage jobs. You can go straight into a factory and you'll be starting wages substantially more than you would doing retail or coffee shops or something like that. Definitely. Definitely. You know, that's something I think if we can really push that message, I think you're going to get more buy-in. Because I remember you and I were talking and we were talking about this. I think it was the CNC technician yeah. jobs. And I think you were saying those jobs pay six figures, if I'm not mistaken, and that there's such a demand for them. Am I correct in saying that? Well, absolutely. And the function of programming the CNC, operating a CNC is just making sure it's running and, and uh, taking the parts in and out and things like that. That still pays fifteen to twenty five dollars an hour for those functions. But if you can program it and make it do what you, that needs to be done, it can again start out a minimum of seventy thousand a year, 
And there's a lot of people making stuff over a hundred. And if you aren't at the company you're working for, it won't pay you a hundred. You can easily pick up side jobs on the evening and weekends to surpass that. So it is definitely the growth market, especially when you've got, uh, again, you've got a brand new jet manufacturer getting ready to make the Concorde. You do not want handmade parts. You want machine-made parts. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a big growth for CNC parts to be produced for the future jets, future cars, future electric vehicles, all these new things. You don't make things by hand because, heck, if, you make, if I made it by hand and you made it by hand, it's, gonna, it's not going to be the same size. Yes, that's going to take <laughs> a long time, too. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Very effective. So the CNC machines, which stands for a computer numerically controlled machine, those are the ones that are really where there's outstanding opportunities. Mm -hmm. The other opportunities that's undervalued and underappreciated and and really not well, well, most people don't know about, is the maintenance function. When you've got highly automated equipment, highly automated factories with sensors everywhere, with internet connections and all the IoT and all this stuff going on, you have to have some very sharp technicians. Mm -hmm. And these technicians have been called maintenance people. And a lot of people equate that as unclogging toilets. They don't realize that maintenance really drives these factories and the highest paid hourly worker is in the maintenance department. Yep. They got to keep the equipment up. Overtime. Yeah. If I'm, not if I'm not mistaken, when you say maintenance, I want to make sure I, I clarify that's they've got to keep the equipment up. That's why they're important. Correct? Absolutely. And so there's a whole nother, uh, they're now calling them reliability uh, techs and reliability engineers because when you're in the maintenance function, that's actually doing something after it's broken. Mm -hmm. And what their job is, is to keep it so it doesn't break. Yes. And that takes a higher thought process and a higher sensitivity to the condition of the equipment. And with technologies out there, you can, again, with sensors and monitors and all these various things, you can put in some systems and process to minimize things. And that's where you're making money. If the machine is down, you're losing money. Definitely. That makes sense. Talk to us about the MakesboroughUSA.com. So because of COVID, uh, I pivoted. I used to, the White House asked me to go around the country and coach makerspaces. There were folks there that saw the value in building community workshops and having community resource centers where people could go have access to tools, equipment, and, and training. And uh, because of COVID, I couldn't travel anymore. So I literally went 200,000 miles over uh, several years and over 40 states and met with several hundred makerspaces. But now I can't do that. So I put every penny I could borrow and put it in this truck and trailer and uh, had some friends help me upgrade it. was now solar powered. And I've got a CNC, I've got lasers, I've got 3D printers, and I'm real excited right now because... I'm ramping up summer manufacturing camp, and I'm only charging 300 a day. And there's people out there charging substantially more than that. So I, I'm making it easy for, for schools and communities to hire me. And I'm going to be super busy this summer getting kids exposed to this. I'm also reaching out to employers 
so that there's more than just one voice uh, talking. I'm going to have a chorus of uh, employers out there uh, singing their message that they've got to get more of their more of these kids got to think about not just what they want to do, but what the companies need them to do and become passionate about that. One of the frustrating points I've seen about American Idol is, oh, this is my passion. This is what I got to do. Your passion is what you put in. It's the passion that doesn't, it's not given to you. It's what you put into it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So we got to have more passionate about welding. We got to have more passionate about fixing things. We got to have more passionate about solving problems. That's where we make money. It's not singing and dancing. Our sure. economy is not built on the backs of singers. Yeah. Now, <laughs> and I'll tell you this. They, you know, you can do that when you're young and you live at home, but eventually you need to make money so you can eat and have a roof over your head. And then, you know, I, I'm sure most people, if you ever go homeless or you're hungry, you're going to get real passionate about having a home, having food in your stomach. I mean, I'm, I'm real passionate about that. That's just, that's basic survival. And these skill sets that you're, that these young people are acquiring allows them to do that. You know, you can sing and enjoy singing. There's nothing wrong with that. But why not have a job that allows you to make a living wage that will fund your ability to sing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, people might like shooting three-pointers, but you probably won't ever get paid for it. So Exactly. We've got to focus on where the companies need you. That's the problem with these career planning things is, hey, what do you want to do? The kids, they're kids. They don't know what they want to do. You got to take. I've got a school system right now. I'm working with. They're saying, "Well, we're going to let the kids choose what they want." I said, "Well, you're not letting me talk to them. They don't even know what I offer. Exactly. And they don't even know what I'm going to have them do. And they're not going to. If they see the word CNC, they don't even know what that means. Yeah. And so they're going to choose singing and dancing over for the summer, over than working with me and and. <laughs> they ain't going to get paid after that. They'll get paid after working with me. I'll tell you something. I mean, I have two kids. They're middle school age. And I'll tell you what most kids understand, and that's numbers, what they get paid. My kids understand money. <laughs> they understand the difference between 20 and 40. You know, or, you know, you know they, they understand money. And I think I got to believe most kids are not very different from my kids. Let them provide, expose them to the opportunity. And I think that's yeah. where you're going. You got to expose them to the opportunity so they can well, have that's an opportunity. Why I'm having employers back, absolutely. That's why I have employers back me up. I mean, they can actually say, hey, if you do this, we'll pay you this. Yes. So it's important for me to have a chorus of folks out there and to work with me and, and guide these kids forward. The other thing is I'm bringing whole teams of folks. I've got some young folks that I've mentored in the past. I've probably gotten 10,000 people jobs in my career. And my and you were asking me who's my mentor. When I first read your question, you asked me when I was a youth. Well, now my mentors are in their 20s, and they teach me how to use my cell phone. They teach me how to 3D print. They <laughs> These kids in their 20s are, are so technically advanced, and they're working with their natives. I, I'm kind of adopting some of this technology now. And so I'm having them come out and help me and speak to these kids in their language, so to speak, at their age left bracket. Because I'm an old white guy, and, and people, you know, they'll look at sometimes at your exterior, and they'll make judgment calls on who they think you might be. I don't want that to cloud the decision. I want to have a chorus of folks, of all kinds of folks out there with me 
make because it's too important to leave it up to somebody's interpretation of what I'm trying to do. They need to know. Also, and that's why we've got to get more. But I also think that, you know, action speaks loudly. And when I listen to you, and I'm sure when they listen to you, they understand your intention because you come with an intention to help them and to serve them. And I think that they'll look past the fact that you're an old white guy. They'll say, hey, this is a guy who's out here, you know, trying to help us and provide an opportunity for us. Speaking of which, what training and how much time does it take for young people to become a skilled technician? Because that's something I'm sure most young people want to know. How long is it going to take? You know, and how much, you know, what maybe what is it going to cost me for the training and what do I get paid after? Can you share information on that? Maybe a ballpark figure for yeah, the well, writer? Well, you know, when the when they were talking about the Olympics, they were how many hours was it? Ten thousand hours to, to be an expert? expert? Yes. Yeah. So that applies to this too. I mean, you know, so if you put five years of training, you're going to be one of the best ones out there. Mm -hmm. And the more, more experience, more exposure, more, and there's some really cool things going on where they've got these skills competitions with robots. And, and, uh, there was a thing called the Shell Eco Marathon. Boy, that, there was some kids that, uh, that I helped uh, that really excelled in that. So doing those kind of things can definitely help in the process. Hanging out at maker spaces. If people are listening, Google maker spaces near me. Go find out where they are. You don't have to spend a lot of money to get exposure to a lot of this stuff. And there's probably some old guys out there that, that grew up in the shops who want to share their knowledge and, and lift other people up. So find out your local makerspace, but go become a member. They typically charge like 50 bucks a month, and you get access to thousands of dollars of equipment. Mm -hmm. And again, also go to your community college. What's interesting is there's a lot of like machining jobs and welding jobs. Mm -hmm. There's so much demand out there for those types of positions that uh, some of the community colleges have difficulty filling out the or getting the class to stay filled because there's job offers that the students who get to, into the class, they get offered jobs before they're even done with the class. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. I've there's heard so that. much demand for that. So I would also tell students that, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask for help and ask for advice. One, first of all, you don't see a lot of students asking people that they don't know for help. It doesn't happen very often. And so people are more likely to help somebody who's 16, 17, 18 than somebody who's 48 and 50. Because, you know, yeah. that's, that's just the nature of our society. They see somebody who's younger, they know that, especially if you're older, most people are willing to help you, especially when you're young. And I think a lot of young people miss they just don't understand that that is a huge advantage for them, that there are just so many people willing to help you. And especially, I would say, in the skilled trades, because it is recognized that there's a shortage. And, and the people who are experienced in the skilled trades and have been working for years in this profession know that. They know that they need more youth, more young people coming in. So they're highly likely to be willing to help you and give you advice. And that is extremely valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other aspect of that, they need to be willing to help others. Mm -hmm. They need to go in with the mindset, well, I'd love to get you to be one of my mentors and I'm willing to do the cleanup. I'm willing to do all the things that you have to do to just to get some information and, and guidance from you as we go along. 
Yes. If they're willing to do that, then people will be more than willing to take the time to, to step up to help them. Yeah, I agree. Um, but a lot of people come in and say, hey, I need your help or I need your funding or I need your, you know, and then there's not anything for the person involved. Well, that, that only goes. So if it's a mutual beneficial, again, I've got teams of folks that uh, if I need something 3D printed in a quick in a hurry, I got some of the best out there to help me. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about some of the earning potential opportunities for young people when they're just finishing school and just getting started, let's say as a skilled technician or any of these programs that you are helping young people get exposed to? Just around, well, it doesn't have to be the exact amount, but just what is their earning potential when they're just getting started? Well, one of the neat things of the renaissance of U.S. manufacturing that's underway right now is the renaissance of apprenticeships. And having a formalized apprenticeships, these programs are getting established and, and set up all around the country because they're proven methods of getting young folks introduced to a pipeline of or to a process of education that they need to get. And their education is actually paid for by their uh, working. Uh, so there's a young man that uh, I worked with and, and he was like the first round draft pick of the local manufacturers after they won the Shell Eco Marathon. And this guy went on and got his uh, two-year degree, didn't have to pay a penny for it. He got it paid for by the company that he had 10 companies chase after him. Wow. He ended up choosing an engineering firm and he's making well in his 50s a year, and I don't know exactly, but I know it's substantial. And uh, he's only like 20 years old. Wow, so, that's good. That's good. <laughs> cannot beat that. So, yeah, I mean, and these are out there. I mean, and again, if people want to, they start uh, working with the level of passion that they did in their sport, that they did in the singing and all these other things, put that same commitment to it and hang out need people to help clean up, go help them. And they might even sponsor a membership for you. Mm -hmm. Google makerspace near me or apprenticeships near me. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they could give them some guidance. But we got to get more employers, uh, more help. Because again, it's, it's getting the labor markets insane. I've never seen anything like it. I used to put on back in 2005, 2006 timeframe, I put on five major job fairs and I had over 1,200 attendees and we got over 200 people jobs. And it was really incredible. The job, this was when the economic downturn, we lost over 300,000 jobs in North Carolina to the uh, NAFTA and the other things. And so, Yes. After that, we had all the. I started hosting my own job fairs because I got tired of watching the obituary column of businesses every night, and I wanted to do something about it. And uh, so we just held a job fair uh, three weeks ago, and it took me the same amount of energy and effort to get thirty-one registrants. <laughs> wow. Thirty-one. Thirty-one. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and employers, I mean, they, they just don't know what to do. They, they're buying ads on radio, they're buying TV spots, they're doing, they're having to do the mass market thing where normally they like to keep it stealthy and, and keep it secretive because they don't want to get inundated with unqualified candidates. That's true. Well, now they can't get any candidates. I want to so, get your opinion on something. So 
with Skill Stadium, I have a platform that allows job seekers to create 30-second video elevator pitches and 360-second videos demonstrating their skills, knowledge of their profession. How do you think that can help employers in terms of seeing a video of somebody? Because people can write whatever they want on their resume. It doesn't mean that they're qualified. What's your take on the use of video as a tool to prove that, hey, this person is competent in what they're doing? I think it's wonderful. Uh, again, if it's not done with the power of trickery uh, <laughs> of editing and things like that. But yeah, if it's, it's uh, all these, it would be, you know, if companies use like YouTube to evaluate somebody's talent and you're setting that up, that's tremendous. I mean, yeah, I mean, I know it would enhance their capabilities and the only bad thing is, you know, if you're looking at somebody's resume, you don't know what they look like. Sure. So sometimes beauty gets uh, chosen over substance sure. in the work world, and and, and so and I, I wouldn't want the videos to be a a, a, um, a beauty contest. I don't want sure. it to be a performance contest. So so yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a good idea. I, I'd love to see it uh, more pervaded. Uh, there's actually uh, there's another platform. Are you familiar with Talo? No, I'm not. So that's something you need to reach out and look at. T A L L O. Oh, Tallow. I'm familiar with Tallow. Yes, T A L O. Tallow. Yeah. So it's supported by SME, uh, the Society for Manufacturing Engineering. There's over a million candidates on it. And employers have to pay, and they also have to be vetted before they're interacting with. And it's not just high school students. Anybody can get on there. And that would be a great thing to add to the profile. Of the candidates uh, to put their videos up there as well. So, yeah, I just um, I just feel like video proves that people can actually do the work, and I also feel like a thirty second elevator pitch is somebody introducing themselves. It's what you're going to have to do when you do an interview, and I do think that that's important. How you speak, how you carry yourself. I think that's why we have interviews. <laughs> you know, because well, and again, the fact that we're in this post COVID world where everything is virtual, I, that's not a bad idea. Yes. So I I think it definitely will fill a need out there. The other cool thing about makerspaces, and I tell employers to go in and join a makerspace and see the people actually work, because you get not only see how they do things individually, but how they work with others Mm -hmm. and uh, how they take care of equipment, how they take care of all the uh, jobs, again, how they clean up after themselves, after they make a mess and all that stuff. You can't see that in a um, in an interview. I agree. Uh, but if you go hang out in the makerspace, you can see how they interact, and then you can have that private conversation. Hey, would you like to, to take on a job? Mm-hmm. No, I agree. By the way, you know, I know that you have a strong presence online, and you know, you have a lot of young people who are giving you advice when it comes to the technology. There are a lot of wonderful platforms that didn't exist when. I was growing up and when you were growing up, we, we didn't grow up with social media and this type of technology. And I also think, I believe that, you know, we, we appreciate it more. Can you tell me how has technology and social media affected the work you do and what is your favorite platform? Well, I mean, it's kind of neat. The fact that we're uh, in COVID, you know, all of us migrated to Zoom and these video conferencing tools. And, and you know, what's neat is I actually became good friends with somebody in Shenzhen and they, they got out of, they ended up out of work. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, because I knew I was a workforce development person, they said, how do I get a job? And they were in Shenzhen. I, I didn't know where to tell them. 
Now, so, were they, did well, you meet I them did through do, LinkedIn? Sorry to interject. Did you I meet met them? her through, well, I, I met her through a, a Facebook live thing, and then, then LinkedIn. We're also members on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably, when you ask to answer your question, LinkedIn is probably the most predominant part of business. Sure. But also, I get a lot of activity via Facebook and some of the, and Instagram and some of the other outlets and Twitter and all that. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so, but the, what was really cool was the power of the internet is I was able to get this gal three companies for her to get interviewed. Mm-hmm. And I'm in North Carolina and she's in Shenzhen and she's like, How do you know so much about Shenzhen? I says, I don't know anything about Shenzhen. She said to her, I said, I didn't know. I just knew the <laughs> Yeah, so you just, I mean, it's just, that's the power of the internet. You just looked it up. It's just finding, the world is a lot yeah. smaller now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's probably one of my proudest placements I ever had was placing somebody in Shenzhen, China. I got her a job and she ended up telling me, she says, I got two offers and I feel like a, a lady that's gotten that I can either marry the man I love or the, the man I, that uh, is rich. And I was like, what do you mean? She says, well, the first company I went to asked me how much I wanted. And then the other company found out of what I was making, got offered and they tripled it. <laughs> and I really don't want to work for that company, but I want to work for the first company. I said, well, you need to tell them. Well, they ended up matching. Nice. Nice. That's amazing. So there's those kind of things. And she was like, I don't do that. I was like, why not? They just need to know that you're you're torn and you're having to make a tough decision. Your value is not the same as what it was uh Three days ago, because there's your market value is, is is escalated because there's more demand for you in the marketplace. Exactly, exactly. they need to know that. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm proud of her, and and she's become a tremendous asset for this 3D printing company. Definitely. So you know, it, it's so much opportunities out there, and the world is definitely not what it was. And again, it it blows me away. I mean, this is the. <laughs> Where I live, I mean, every night there was a dish, there was a closing, there was an announcement, and now it's, there's an announcement of jobs. Yeah, and I just found out there's two million square foot of uh, future announcements that will be announced in the next several months. They're just waiting on permits to be approved. Oh, that's awesome! That's great news. I do remember North Carolina getting hammered and. You know, manufacturing was going overseas. I do remember that, and I, I, yeah. I mean, I saw it on the news. And I, I, you know, obviously, I don't live there, but it was bad enough that it was making national news. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, what you're well, again, Ross was- Perot in 1992 that incredible sucking sound that you'll hear was manufacturing the United States. Well, that happened right here. So, yeah, you know, and and we found out because of COVID when you have the supply chains. Uh, Yes. And you've got things in other countries. You gotta have be able to produce locally, or you're you literally can die. Look at our you literally can even produce yeah. your own PPE. Yep. And you know, so I'm as bad as COVID was. It was a bit of a blessing in disguise. It did make a lot of change. I mean, it's I'm not saying I'm happy we had it, but it did wake us up to a lot of things, particularly as you can see, manufacturing and it. Expose our supply chain. I mean, it it really did a number on us. Well, it made us appreciate essential. The word essential. Yes. I mean, 
there's essential jobs. There are things that are nice to have, but they're not essential. Yes. And uh, so we've got to get our kids to realize what they want to do needs to be essential and they'll always have job security. That's true. <laughs> the other thing I tell you, some young people too, that's really great about the skill trade is somebody will always pay you for this type of work, even if you don't have a traditional nine to five. So when I say that, I say, if you're an auto technician, you can fix cars, you can do plumbing, you can do electricity. Everybody's got a home. <laughs> Everybody's yeah, got a absolutely. car and they're going to spend money to get to have those things maintained, regardless of whether it's with you or someone else. But they're going to spend money. I guarantee that. That I guarantee <laughs> is going absolutely. to happen. Absolutely. I can guarantee that, that somebody's going to spend money to maintain their car. They're going to spend money to fix their electric. They're going to spend money to do their plumbing because the average person doesn't know how to do it. So this is what I said before a congressional forum, and I was the only non-millionaire, non-PhD on this panel, mm -hmm. and I ended up with over 20-some people standing in line wanting to talk to me afterwards because I said this, the society that scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity and tolerate shoddiness and philosophy because philosophies and exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy, neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. And that was said by our former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, John Garner, back during the Johnson administration. And that's so true nowadays. And so we have to realize that there's some functions we got to do. Yes. And it's not a matter of passion. It's a matter of essential. And we got to build a passion towards it. Amen. That's and, so true. Uh, Can you repeat that line again, please? I think that was so powerful. Can you say that one more time, please? The society that scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity and tolerates shortiness in philosophy because philosophy is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. That's powerful. That's powerful. I just, and it, it's amazing because that's the Johnson administration. That's like 64, 68. 60s, yeah, yeah. He was also in the Carter administration. He was a very eloquent John Gardner. You can look him up. He was very eloquent back then. And, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, but again, that, that was long before we had the BP oil crisis. That was long before yeah. we had those, 70s oil uh, Enron and all these disasters that yeah. have happened. I mean, it's, uh, maintenance and plumbing and all these things, we've got to invest in it. And uh, it's not an option. I agree. And uh, believe it or not, I was in uh, Antwerp, Belgium in 2006, and there were British Petroleum engineers on the program bragging about why you don't have to do maintenance. Mm -hmm. That was before the wow. pipeline issues and also the Houston where 17 people uh, got killed. They literally challenged whether the manuals that the, uh, the OEMs or the equipment manual needed to be done that way. They said you can save a lot of money by not doing it and wow. test it out. Wow. That was what they were, they were telling engineers not to do maintenance. I mean, that was incredible. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Joel, 
Final question. How the price can, for that. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Joel, can you share how people can find you and what they can do to support the work that you do? Well, they can go to makesprousa.com. They can see me on LinkedIn, Joel Leonard, the maker's maker. That's what they call me. And uh, or they can find me on Facebook. And uh, heck, I don't care as long as they don't call me in the middle of the night. My number is 336-338-1011. And yeah, we my my gal saying they do call him in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joel, for being a guest on the Skill Stadium podcast, and I wish you continued success. And uh, thank you again. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the time today. And, and you definitely, uh, you take podcasting up to a whole nother level. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for listening to Skill Stadium. It would mean so much if you left a review on iTunes and told your family and friends about the podcast.